So I want you to turn with me to the first chapter, the first, second, and third chapters of the book of Revelation. I believe that the messages to the seven churches in Asia are among the most relevant things that we can study today and apply to our organization, the BGA, and its affiliates, and as individuals. These seven churches, as all of you know, were on the western seaboard of Turkey in what was called Asia Minor. And these were relatively new churches, but already the devil was at work. Conflict between Christ and Antichrist was already in full swing. The devil's three strategies in all of these churches were the same. Persecution, second, intellectual, false cults, false teachers, false prophets. Third, moral, through sub-Christian ethical standards. The devil's three great strategies. In all of the places that we've been, I've sensed these three strategies of the devil at work. And Satan and Antichrist are at work at this moment throughout the world. But I believe that this study of the message of our Lord to these seven churches is designed to bring revival and purification to either a church, a parachurch organization, or to an individual that loves the Lord. The picture that we have of our Lord Jesus Christ is first, he is a faithful witness. Second, the firstborn of the dead. Third, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth cannot do anything without the permissive will of the king of kings and lord of lords. Fourthly, Alpha and Omega, from everlasting to everlasting. And then the second coming. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, we're told in the seventh verse. And this time he's coming in judgment to judge the earth and to judge the world. Now, there were seven separate lampstands. That, to me, is very interesting because in the temple or in the synagogue, there was one lampstand. And there were seven stars in his right hand. Now, both stars and lamps diffuse light. This means to me that the churches and the followers of Christ are to be light bearers in the darkness of the world. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the question I would ask at this point, are you bearing the light, the reflected glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, in your family, in your ministry? Now to each of these churches, he says something else very significant. He says, I know. He says it to each of the seven churches. I know. He seeks to commend our virtues as well as convict and correct our faults and sins in his messages to the seven churches. But he knows all about us. And here we find him as the archbishop walking among the churches through the organizations, through the individuals, in our homes. And he says, I know all about you. I know every secret. I know your thoughts. I know your intents. I know your motives. 
I know what you really are inside. To Ephesus, Ephesus represents to me the danger of leaving our first love. Ephesus had a great beginning. Read it in the 19th chapter of Acts. Paul had been hindered by the Holy Spirit to go on his second missionary journey, but he eventually stayed two and a half years preaching and visiting in homes. And the Lord Jesus says here, I know thy works. You're a wonderful church. He commends them. You work hard. You endure much. You're patient. And you have the courage to throw out error. You have discipline in the church. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. He didn't say you lost it. He said you left it. An act of your will. To love lies in the power of the will, otherwise it would not be commanded. It's an act, not merely an emotion. The church in Ephesus had lost the intensity of the first love. Now, was it first love to God? Could have been. For each other? Could have been. Love for the poor and the oppressed? Could have been. But I think it was primarily lost love for the souls of men. Moody read that passage. And he was so convicted that he made a decision that he would never go to bed at night unless he had spoken to someone personally, personally about Jesus Christ. And one night it was one o'clock in the morning and Moody had gone to bed and he said, today I've not spoken to anyone about the Lord Jesus Christ. He got up, went out on the streets of Glasgow and found an old drunk and led him to Christ. Nothing more thrilling than the excitement of a new Christian. The message of Christ is this. Repent. Repent. If we lose that first love for him, the intensity of that first love for each other, the intensity of that first love for souls, he said, that's what I have against you. And he said, unless you repent, I'm going to come and remove my power from you and you'll be as dead as a doornail. Now that convicts me. He said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And one of the most solemn studies I've ever made in the Bible is that concerning the hearing ear. Jeremiah said, O foolish people without understanding, which have eyes that see not and which have ears that hear not. And I'm asking myself this week, will we in this little conference hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ? No organization, BGA or any other organization, has a secure and permanent place in the world. It is continuously on trial. The Ephesian church had lost what once they had and they must recapture it. Renew your devotion to me, says Christ. Renew the work you used to do or I'll take my power from you. What does he say to us today? Many churches all over the world today have ceased to exist. Their buildings remain intact. 
their ministers minister and their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed and the church is plunged in darkness. We come to the second church, Smyrna. Smyrna to me represents the problems of suffering. This letter is taken up almost entirely with the suffering of the people of Smyrna for their testimony for the Lord. It was a dangerous thing to be a Christian in Smyrna. They were a poor people. We've just come from India and when you go to India, you cannot be the same. We come here to the affluency and there's a cultural shock when you get to India and there's a cultural shock when you leave India. But on November the 19th, a cyclone hit one of the most fertile parts of India where about 30% of all the rice for India is grown. Not only was it a cyclone, which they're used to two or three a year, but a tidal wave 18 feet high swept in and around each of the villages were thorn bushes, very strong thorn bushes to protect them. And the people were caught in the thorn bushes. And you would see hundreds and thousands of pieces of clothing and each piece of clothing was a body. We saw the little fires where the prisoners had been let out of prison and they were burning the bodies and we have pictures, I don't know whether they're up yet or not, of us standing and watching them as they would carry these bodies on sticks and they had the handkerchiefs around their noses because of the stench. The people had lost everything and a man grabbed my leg and he was screaming at the top of his lungs and he wouldn't let go and he was a strong man and some of the friends had to pull him away eventually. And he was screaming, kill us, kill us, or rebuild us. One man had lost seven children and his wife. He had been away, came back, nothing. Many of the villages had nothing but maybe a little jar that they had found. Like an atomic bomb had hit it. They can't use the ground for five years because of the salt water. Poverty, such as we will never know probably in our lifetime, and yet we might, we don't know. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna that they were poor. But like the Macedonians, they shared their wealth with or their poverty with others. And all over India, they were taking collections in the churches among government officials and school teachers and everybody, taking collections to help these people. And we were able to give them out of our relief fund, leave with them some $250,000 in various agencies. We didn't try to do it ourselves, but agencies that were already at work, like the Salvation Army and World Vision and so forth. But you know, our support financially has primarily come from the ordinary people. And then, of course, there was slander. He said, I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews, but are not. Tongues were wagging busily in Smyrna. False rumors were circulating. James spoke of a man who bridleth not his tongue, and Christ calls it the synagogue of Satan. They had learned their ways from their master, who is later called the devil, which means the accuser, the slanderer. Christ called him a liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44. 
when some of these things came out this summer about us that some of you read, I talked to my son who's at the university, and he said, Dad, you shouldn't even think about it. He said, you know where these lies come from, don't you? I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, who's the father of lies? I said, the devil. He said, that's where it's coming from. He said, you're in a spiritual battle. And he said, look upon it as the devil. Well, gossip holds a strange fascination for all of us. Idle gossip. Slander. But here he was talking about physical suffering. I wonder what is happening to church leaders in Vietnam. Vietnam and Cambodia are in a full-scale war right now. One is backed by Russia and one is backed by China. And it's happening along the mountainous area where the Montagnards lived, where so many hundreds and thousands of Christians lived, and so many faithful pastors. And I remember we sent a DC-8 to pick up those pastors that last day that you could get in. And they had an all-night prayer meeting. And 148 of them said, we're not leaving, we're staying. And I was told by a person that knows a little bit of what's going on there that at least a third of those pastors are now dead. Festo Kibandra told us about some of the suffering in Uganda and he told us about one man that was being shot for his faith and he stood up against the tree. The firing squad was there and he said, I would like to say a word. He said, I love you. I love my country. I want to sing a song. And then he began to sing out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. And he was shot. And it's estimated that tens of thousands in Uganda and in Central Africa have died because of their faith in Christ. And all over the world, there's a growing revival, evangelical resurgence, but there's a growing opposition and hostility at the same time. We can sense it. And it was in this town of Smyrna that Polycarp, on February the 22nd, 156 A.D., refused to bow to Caesar. And he said to the proconsul, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned him at the stake, but the fire was swept away by the wind, and a soldier had to throw a spear into his body to end his life. Jesus said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. When I started reading about some of the torches that they use today with electronics, I often wonder, would I deny my Lord? I've almost asked the Lord to preserve me from that trial. And yet, if that's God's will for me, that's what I want. And yet, I don't want it. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. 
Paul said to Timothy, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Have you ever been persecuted because you live godly for Christ Jesus? It is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And I knew in India when I gave that appeal night after night, and those people would come to Christ if they meant business with Christ, many of them would be kicked out of their homes. And I tried to spell out the cost of following Christ night after night so that they wouldn't come under false pretenses. What about your own heart? Is God taking you through some testing period now? Maybe a child that's gone astray? A boy or a girl that's heavy upon your heart as a parent or a grandchild? Or maybe friction between you and your wife? I want you to turn with me to the first chapter, beginning with verse 9, these words. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, unto Laodicea. To Ephesus, Ephesus represents to me the danger of leaving our first love the intensity of that first love for each other, the intensity of that first love for souls. He said, that's what I have against you. And he said, unless you repent, I'm going to come and remove my power from you and you'll be as dead as a doornail. We come to the second church, Smyrna. Smyrna to me represents the problems of suffering. This letter is taken up almost entirely with the suffering of the people of Smyrna for their testimony for the Lord. It was a dangerous thing to be a Christian in Smyrna. Paul said to Timothy, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Have you ever been persecuted because you live godly for Christ Jesus? It is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Thirdly, Pergamos represents the danger of theological compromise. I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And it seems to me that Satan's throne is everywhere at the moment. Pergamos had many temples and many altars, and he commends them for holding fast my name and has not denied my faith. This organization should have love in one hand and truth in the other. Some Christians try to make love paramount and forget the sacredness of revealed truth. Love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth, and truth becomes hard and bitter if it is not softened by love. Jesus said that he is the light of the world and he is also the truth. He said they would know the truth and the truth would liberate them. He loves the truth. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. Therefore, we cannot be indifferent to truth. 
and it's indicated at Pergamos only a few had departed from the narrow path of truth. They were guilty of the sin of Balaam, and they tolerated the sin of Balaam, which of course was fornication with the world. The sin of Pergamos was that they tolerated theological error in their midst and did not have discipline. I believe that there are many great corrective forces that God raises up in history, theologically. I think the Reformation was one. I have a feeling that Lausanne was one in 1974. He warns that if you tolerate error and let it fester and grow in the seminary, in the church, in BGA, to repent or I'll take my power from you. Now we're living in a day of evangelical resurgence and there are many, many views being expressed on all kinds of subjects concerning the Bible, concerning the Holy Spirit, concerning social involvement. All of these things are being talked about and are becoming to some extent divisive. Someone has said we must learn to preserve unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and charity in all things. There are certain theological defense positions that we cannot yield in this organization. One, there is no negotiation or appeasement when it comes to the virgin birth of Christ the vicarious atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the coming again of Christ. We cannot compromise our view on the authority of Scripture. Now, the issue has been raised. I myself take the position uh, that I believe in an infallible Bible, but I can fellowship with people who do not hold that high a view of Scripture. I do not believe that we're to divide on that. If division comes, it comes over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that I've just mentioned. But we take our position and take our stand publicly and openly that we believe the Word of God to be infallible. We cannot compromise the ethical view concerning holiness and integrity. We have many people that say, I believe the Bible from cover to cover, but do not have integrity and do not live holy lives. We must have both. The only weapon which can slay the forces of error is God's word, which is called here a sharp and two-edged sword. Fourthly, Thyatira represents the danger of moral compromise. We live in a permissive society. We read every day of things that are taking place, such as Morris Rowlandson reminded us of concerning Great Britain. He commends the church in Thyatira. He says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and patience and works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Now, this probably was a very real woman by the name of Jezebel, not the same Jezebel in the first Kings, 
that went after Elijah and ended up so tragically for her. But she was probably a woman similar to Jezebel. The first Jezebel had been dead for a thousand years. And her evil spirit seemed to be in Thyatira. They were practicing immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now the emphasis was on their moral sin rather than on their error. It was a question of ethics rather than doctrine. They had either a very poor conscience or a very feeble courage. Because the people were beginning to say, well, God doesn't see. He doesn't judge. He'll overlook that. And they made excuses for tolerating immorality among them. The scripture says in Isaiah 29, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? God won't see. In Hebrews, the scripture says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Romans 2.16 God shall judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We must learn to live in the presence of Christ who has eyes like a flame of fire and searches the mind and heart 24 hours a day, walking among the lampstands. Do we tolerate that Jezebel in our lives? Integrity, honesty, truthfulness, worldliness. I believe God is looking for men and women that are holy. Not so much just great gifted people, but holy men and women. Fifthly, Sardis represents the danger of spiritual deadness. How often we hear our church is dead, our pastor is dead, or our organization is dead. Outward appearances are deceptive. The socially distinguished congregation at Sardis was a spiritual graveyard. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It was an empty shell. Could it be that BGA will someday become a gigantic deception? I'm trying to learn never to grow too depressed when criticized or too elated when flattered. The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The people who did not share in the general stagnation are described as people who have not soiled their garments. So this spiritual death at Sardis was dirt. Beneath the exterior was secret uncleanness. And that brings us to the same thing we were saying a moment ago about Thyatira. Do not be conformed to the world. How slowly but deceptively the leaven of worldliness can spread through our organization. The name of Sardis was now a lie. One of the first churches in all of history to be filled with nominal Christians. We must recognize the difference between outward appearance and inward reality. 
Isaiah said, This people draw near me with their mouths, and with their lips do they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe unto you, you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. What would he say to us tonight if he were here? What is he saying to us? How many of us feel like hypocrites? We live a lie. We preach one thing and do another. We have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You can trace this terrible tendency right through the Bible and right through church history. A form without power, a name without light, an outward appearance without an inward reality. And he says four things to them. He says, awake, strengthen what remains, remember, and repent. God said to the church at Sardis, repent or I'll remove my power. Sixthly, Philadelphia represents the problems of evangelism. There's a door open that no man can shut. This gospel must be preached into all the world, then shall the end come. Philadelphia had an open door. There was the door of salvation to be sure, there was the door of service to be sure, but I think the scripture here the Lord is talking about openings to spread the gospel were many and great in the Roman Empire of the first century. I believe that right now is happening worldwide. I believe it's beginning to happen even in Europe. It's certainly happening across Asia, and it's certainly happening across Latin America. We've been reading about Luis Palau and the tremendous openings God has given him with the presidents of the countries of Latin America. I have never seen such an open door. We have never had such an avalanche of invitations for citywide evangelistic crusades as we're getting right now in all of our ministry, in places we never expected to go, and receptions we never expected to have. We can only say it's God. Christ has the keys. He opens the door. I don't believe we're to barge ahead of him. We must wait for him to make openings for us. Seventhly, Laodicea represents the problems of complacency, depending on our own strength, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Because thou art lukewarm and neither cold, now that word there, I'm not a Greek student, Dr. Ockin gave us reading from his Greek New Testament this morning, I know a couple of Greek words, Alpha and Omega. But I believe uh, I'm told that that word cold there means ice cold and that word hot means boiling hot. Because you're not ice cold nor boiling hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. We have gadgets and money and computers. And you know, almost everything in the church today or everything in BGA could be done automatically. We can send it up to George Wilson and get it done on automation. But it's like the dry bones of Ezekiel. 
We need the breath of God, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the Holy Spirit is moving throughout the world, and we must be in step with him. And he warned them, repent, or I'll remove my power from you. And then there comes this last word to BGA tonight from our Lord. He's outside the door knocking. They said, I'm rich, I've prospered, and there's nothing that I need. God looked into their hearts and said, No, you're wretched, and you're miserable, and you're poor, and you're blind, and you're naked. He said, Repent. Do you have something to repent of tonight? In your life? In your home? Do we have something as an organization to repent of? As Leighton said, in a sense, we're a church, a missionary church, an evangelistic church, an arm of the church. What is he saying to you tonight? He turns from the church to the individual. And he says, if any man, if any man, if you, if any man, any woman, hear my voice and open the door, I will come into it. I'm going to ask you tonight to reach up and turn the knob and open the door. And ask him in in all of his power. Let the listener hear what the Spirit says to BGEA.